just thank you for this day. We thank you for everything you've given us and ask you to give us guidance and understanding as we look at your word and as we study Nehemiah. And we just thank you for this opportunity in your son's name. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 7. We've missed four weeks with all the holidays and everything, so we're going to get started here. It's good to be back on our study. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came to pass when the wall was built that I had... And I had set up the doors, and the porters, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed, that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot, and while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them, and appoint watches in the, of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everyone in his watch, and everyone to be over against his house. Now the city was large and great, but the people were few therein, and the houses were not built. And my God put into my heart to gather the people, the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be reckoned by genealogies. And I had found the registry of the genealogy of them that came up at the first, and found written therein. Okay, so let's just look at this before we get to this long genealogy stuff. Um, We've got the walls built, the, the temple's been taken care of, and he says, and it came to pass after the wall was built, and he set up the doors, he's put up the, the doors to the walls, we know that there were many doors in the walls that had to be put up, we did that in previous studies, and he had assigned the porters and the singers and the Levites were, report, you know, were appointed, so he's got everything all set up, the city is built, the walls are built, he's put guards, then he talks about he's organized the sanctuary with the porters and the singers and everything is all and the Levites have been been appointed to their particular jobs and he says all that's been taken care of and he gave his brother and the and the priest the, the ruler of the palace charge over Jerusalem he's, he's starting to give away his responsibilities and this goes back to the very beginning at Nehemiah 2 6 where he told Artaxerxes that you know how long would he be gone so now he's getting ready to transition back to going home now we've still got some verses left to go but it's been 30 years uh, somewhere around there we we talked about that it took a while uh, 20 to 32 years to, to get this all done so he's been away a while and I don't know if he told Artaxerxes he'd be away that long or not but you know he did tell him he had to get this job done and I don't think Artaxerxes expected the wall to be built Overnight, you know, it's not like okay, you go build the wall and it's going to be done. You know, the next day you're going to have the wall built. You know, it's, you know we couldn't even do that in today's world with all the tools that we have, and he did not have those tools, and he did not have a large number of people. Uh, but I love, I kind of think it was interesting. He says he gave charge over Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man, and feared God above. And I look at this word many. I like that. Now, this was not the normal, he was the, the top guy, but he, he took the best that he had available, basically. Gets, you know, obviously, this was something that he struggled with. Who am I going to leave in charge? And this is going to be this situation. But he gave some instructions. He says, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot. So he says, make sure the sun is not first thing cracking the dawn, but it it's going to be a couple hours after sunrise that he says, open the gates. He doesn't want people to be mistaken. He wants the sun to be very much in their face and, and be able to identify exactly who's trying to come in, who they are, when they're supposed to be gone, and 
and then it says, and, and while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them. Okay, so he was also saying, because, and we think about this, Sanballat's been giving him so much trouble, all the neighbors are giving him trouble, he says, don't open the doors until the, until the sun is way up, keep the gates barred, and most cities in those days would keep the cities wide open, but he does not have an army to defend Jerusalem. So he says, we keep people out, we're going to be okay. If we only let people in and know who's in, we're going to be okay. So he's saying, the doors are going to be kept closed. Keep the doors closed. to Keep it a fortified city. And he says, you know, so let them and bar the doors and appoint watches for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everyone in his watch and everyone over, his, over against his house. So the watches, of course, are guards. And he's saying, let the people guard, and by the way, let them guard close to their house. That would make them more attentive. You know, it's one thing to be having trouble near your home, or you know, and if you're guarding the far side of the city, which is you know a good couple hours away, you may not care as much if they got in. So he says, we're just going to have them guard close to their houses, and by doing that, he ensures that there's going to be a very conscious guard. They're going to be more more anxious to protect their area. So he's a very intelligent leader. And he says, God put in my heart to gather together the nobles of the people. And oh, and the city was large and there weren't a lot of people in it. So that was his big complaint. There's very, you know, you got a city that can hold several hundred thousand people and nobody, hard, you know, nobody's in it hardly. That would be like building a great big apartment complex that can, can have thousands of people and you only have eight units rented, you know, it's, it will look very empty. And so he says, God put it into heart to, to gather the people together because he had found the registry or the records of Ezra. And if you look at this next section, I'm not going to read this whole section because we read it in Ezra just a couple months ago. Yeah, and I remember the first wave, or the first return, they call it. This was the return, yeah, the return, the return in Ezra, the first return in Ezra, and it is almost completely exactly the same. They break a couple of the families in, in a little bit, but for the most part, it is exactly the same list all the way through till we get down to verse 61. Uh, even beyond that, but we'll start at 61 because there's a list of these families where the priest had intermarried in, in verse 63, the priest, couple of the priests had intermarried and they were not allowed to serve as priests because they couldn't prove their genealogies and their records. And so they weren't allowed to, to, to run. Verse 65, and, and the Tershatha, which means governor, said unto them that they should not eat the, of the most holy things till there, there stood a priest with the Thurum and uh, the Urim and the Thurum. And remember, those are the stones that were put into the breastplate of the priest, and they somehow used them to say yes, no, maybe, uh, go, don't go. I mean, uh, it literally, literally mean lights. It almost is like flipping a coin. We don't. We really don't know much about it because there's only seven references to the Urim and uh, Urim and Thurim, and so we don't know a lot about it. We know they were some kind of stones, and we know that somehow the priest used them to give advice. So somehow they gave a yes or a no, or maybe you know the light shone on them in a certain way. They rolled them. Who knows exactly what they did, but they took them out and they got an answer. 
And it might have been as simple as one was yes, one was no, and whichever one they act, pulled out was the answer. We don't, we really don't know how they use them, but they're mentioned in uh, Exodus 28 where they're told to make them, Leviticus 8 where they're told where they're at, uh, Numbers 27 where it was a council of a decision that was being verified, uh, Deuteronomy 33, uh, they were to be carried by the high priest. <laughs> Uh, 1 Samuel 28, they were used to inquire of God. And then Ezra and Nehemiah both mentioned them, that they were waiting for a, high, for a priest that would, could use the Urim and, Urim and, and Thurim. Uh, so we just kind of mentioned that because it's something we've looked at. And uh, then we go down. We're going to come down a little lower, uh, verse 70. And some of the chief of the fathers gave unto the work. The, the Tershathah gave to the treasury, and that's, Nehemiah, he gave to the treasury a thousand drams of gold, fifty basins, five hundred and and thirty priest garments. Uh, the gold alone was about hundred and twenty thousand dollars worth of gold. All right, in our day, in our in our count, uh, and then he gave them fifty basins, and that's uh, bowls or or a container of uh, wine or liquid, and then clothing. 530 pieces of clothing for the for the priest garments. So he's helping to pr provide for the priest as far as mon money and clothing. And some of the chief fathers gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 drams of gold and 2,200 pounds of silver. And the gold is approximately $2.4 million worth of gold. Uh, with the silver being in the range of about 12... $1,200 worth. And the rest of the people gave 20,000 drams of gold and 2,000 pounds of silver. So we got the same numbers all again. So the, the priests are getting, you know, about $5 million worth of gold to, to support themselves in God's work. That's a pretty good gift. If we could get $5 million in our church, I'd be happy to have $5 million in our church to do something with. Uh, of course, they had a lot more priests to have to deal with than we do, so we might not need that kind of money. <laughs> you know, we just have one pastor, so we don't need five million, but if God blessed it, we'd find a way to use it. But it's there's... Easy, it's easy to spend money, hard to make it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Anybody can spend it, hard to save it. Yep. So verse 37 says, So the priests and the Levites and the porters and the singers and, and some of the people in the Nephilims and all of Israel dwelt in their cities and the and when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their city. So here we are. We're finally, the city's built. Everybody's where they live. It's, and he notes that it's the seventh month, which will become very important in the eighth chapter. Because in the seventh month, you have two Jewish feasts that come. You have the feast of, of um, yes, the feast of trumpets which is liber set to be set at liberty, and you have the Feast of Tabernacle. And we're going to be talking mostly about the Feast of Tabernacle in Chapter 8. So we've got two big feasts coming up, and we're going to see some very interesting things out of this. Chapter 8. We went through 7 very quickly because it's all a lot of repeat and just a bunch of numbers. And a lot of people, which we already read a couple months ago, and I don't feel like reading 60 verses of names again. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man in the street and was, that was before the water gate. And they spoke unto Ezra the scribe 
to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both the men and women and all that could hear with understanding, upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the, the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before, before the men and the women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for the purpose, and beside him was Mattathiah and Shema and Ananiah and Urijah and Hilkiah and Maashaiah. On his right hand and on his left hand was Pedera, Mishael, Malchiah, Hashum, Hasbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above the people, and he opened it, and all the people stood up. So I'm going to stop right there for a moment. So this is really an amazing, I love this because it shows such love for God's word, desire for God's word. Verse 1 says, And all the people gathered themselves, and they spoke to Moses, to, uh, to Ezra, to bring out the book of the law that Moses had given. Oh, that we would ever have that kind of you know, request, that people just come to church and say, hey, we want, we want to know what the Bible says. We want you just to read and, and teach. You know, and this is, seems to be spontaneous. It doesn't seem that Ezra is the one initiating this. It very much seems to be the people coming to him and say, hey, we want to know what God says in, in, the, in the law. Teach us. And we're going to see that they do. And so it says that Ezra brought it out. On the first day of the month, he brings it out, and he starts reading it. And it says that he's going to be standing on a, they say, a pulpit, a pile or a tower of wood, you know, stand up above people. And it says in verse 3, he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning until midday, and the people stood. So it seems to be that he's going to teach them for six, approximately six hours. Give or take, you know, give or take a few minutes, you know, depending on when sunrise came up. But from morning, when the sun comes up till midday, he reads the scriptures to them. And they stood there. And the whole description he read to the women, the men, the women, and all those who with understanding, which means some children. Okay, some children were there if they were old enough to understand. And he stood up and read and Six hours of teaching. To me, this is an amazing thing. And the people stood there and listened. This is a hunger for God's word that any teacher would love to have seen. <laughs> you know, and I've, I've seen this example. My dad talked about going overseas and, and, and teaching to people, and they just wanted him to keep teaching and keep teaching and keep teaching because they were so hungry for the word of God. And these people were that way. Just keep going, keep going, Ezra, we want more. And we're going to see that it wasn't just straight reading of this that they were doing. Verse 25, and Ezra opened the book. Oh, he gives this list of 13 different people that are standing on the pulpit with him. Uh, they were, uh, most people believe that they were of the course of the priests that were actually serving that particular time. We don't really know much about the, any of these people. Ezra opened the book. And it says in verse 5, And all the people stood. They're going to stand for six hours, which was the common way the Jewish people taught. The, 
the teacher, the rabbi, in this case he's standing because he's teaching so many, but in, in most cases the rabbi sat down and the, Jew, and the, and the audience stood up. Uh, and that was just the way they did it. It was the respect of the, of the rabbi and standing up was not something that was unusual to them. And can you imagine standing for six hours, it would have been a long day to stand in the hot sun. <laughs> because in this time we're not talking about them being in a building. They are out in the street. <laughs> In some kind of square, some kind of set of streets. And verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the lifting of their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So we've got this whole worship time. He blesses them, he gives the prayers, and the people say, Amen, which means let it be so, or let it be, you know, let it be of truth, that type of, that, or that is true, we, we agree with it. And it says that they lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads. And all through the scriptures it talks about worshiping God by lifting up hands. And usually it's, I think it's part of the idea of surrender. If your hands are lifted up, you're in surrender. And it's a way just to show God you've surrendered to him. And then they bowed their heads to the ground in, in humility. Verse 7, And Yeshua and Benai, or ben, Beni, and Sherebai, and Jamin, and Akab, and Shabbathai, and Hadijah, and Masai, and Keletah, Azariah, Josabad, Hannah, Pelai, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So it wasn't just reading the book for those six hours. There's multiple teachers here making sure that they understand what it is that they were being taught. They had several sermons being taught to them that day <laughs> that for, the, for those six hours. And that is one of the great things sometimes you see in, in big churches, you'll have a big event and several pastors over hours will preach. And we're seeing that here. These probably are Levite, you know, Levites and priests and they're teaching. They might even be scribes. They understand the law. They're teaching the law. They're making sure people understand exactly what it is. So they read the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. I love the way they did. They read, they read the book clearly. People understood it. They just read through it. And then they gave the sense. They taught them. Now, here's what it says, here's what it means, and that's what I spend most of my time doing. Here's what it says, here's what it means, and then here's how you apply it. And we see that in here too, and it caused them to understand. By understanding, they could apply. And it's very important for us to be able to understand and apply to our life. Because if we, we can have all the understanding we think we want, but if we don't learn to apply God's word, all we have is a bunch of knowledge that doesn't mean anything. And so we want to be able to see, apply, apply, apply. When we read through the scriptures, I encourage everybody to read through the scriptures. I'm, I'm hoping that they'll learn to apply it to their life because it's not just to read the scriptures that's important. You know, it's, uh, if I just fill my head with a whole bunch of knowledge and don't do anything with it, it's just wasted. And that's one of the reasons I encourage people to read Proverbs each day because it's so much information in Proverbs that if they read that Proverbs through the, the 12 times in a year, their life will change just by reading Proverbs. 
but the rest of the Bible is to get more knowledge in, uh, more understanding. And this they did for six hours. They were given instruction about the Word of God. And very powerful. I, I love I loved this, what I read in this because, and you think about this, the people desired it up front. They asked for, the, for, for Ezra to teach. They asked for the Word to be read. They were getting hungry for God, which really goes to show that Ezra had been doing a good job bringing people around for that period of time. He was getting them a thirst. And the wonderful thing about the, the Word of God is it's one of those things that we, when we study, the more we study it, the more we want, if you're really studying it. It's not like eating where you can get satisfied and say, okay, I've had enough, I can't eat another bite. The Word of God, if you really desire it, there's never that place where it says, oh, I don't, I, I've had enough, I've got to stop. Uh, I, when I study, I have to make myself stop most of the time because it's just so exciting to get into it. It's so exciting to dig deeper and dig deeper. And the more we know about the Bible, the deeper we want to go into it because it creates a thirst within us that just is insatiable. And we want more. We want more. And it's great when we see people desire that more and they want more and they want more instruction. And as a teacher of the Word, it's a great time for me to just be able to, here it is. Great, you want more? <laughs> Let's give you more. And it challenges me to get in deeper as I give, them, give people more. And here it was that he's saying they wanted it. They wanted a great deal of it. Verse 9, And Nehemiah, which, which is a Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This is a day... This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And we think about this. They heard the words of the law. It is obvious that they hadn't been hearing them very much. And all of a sudden they saw their sins. They saw all the things they hadn't done. And this is why when, when we do evangelism, we want to give people the law. We want the, 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 the gospel, the message, the word. God says his word does not return void. We give the word. When people say, well, how do I witness to somebody who doesn't believe the Bible? You teach them what the Bible says. You know, we, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We keep giving the word of God. We keep giving the word of God. And there will be people who say, well, if they don't believe it, it doesn't matter. God's word is true. It doesn't matter what they believe. We give that word to them, and God will put them in the situation where that word will become life to them. They'll, they'll learn it. They'll think about it. They'll see it. But we need to be able to just give the word. And that's why I tell people, you know, because often, and I've said it over and over, people will say, well, how do I witness to a Muslim? How do I witness to Jehovah's Witness? You give them God's truth. We're all sinners. We're, we, need, we need God. We're, we're headed for hell. Jesus paid the price. And they'll go, well, they don't believe it. It doesn't matter. Truth is truth, no matter whether people believe it or not. And we've gone over that at various times. I mean, if somebody goes to a cliff and says, I don't believe in, in gravity, and they truly, truly in their heart don't believe in gravity, it doesn't matter. They step off the cliff, they're going to fall. They're not going to stand there in the middle of the air just because they don't believe in gravity. And so we see the same thing. We give them God's word. We give them the gospel. We show them what God says and we just leave it. 
And it can be, you know, if you really want to do evangelism good, you can ask them what they believe and listen politely so they'll listen to you in, in politeness. Confess, repent. Confess and then repent. The gospel, I mean, recognize that I'm a sinner, recognize I deserve punishment, confess my, you know, accept the gift of Jesus by confession and repentance. And repentance is important. I've got to confess, and confess in the Hebrew means to say the same thing as. I say the same thing about sin that God says about sin. It's bad. It's evil. And too often people will not do confession. They'll go, well, it's not really that bad. Uh, you know, it, everybody's doing it. No, God says it's a sin. We need to agree that our sin is a sin. And then repent, turn away from it. Does that mean we won't fall for that sin again? Well, unfortunately, we're human and we may, but we still turn away from it and walk away from it toward God. Sanctification or justification and then glorification. And sanctification. sanctification. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Yeah. God declares us perfect, we become, we become more and more perfect, and then we will be perfect at death. The three steps, stages of salvation. Justification, justification first. Yeah, justification first. I am declared perfect. Then I am being sanctified where I start becoming what God said I was. And glorification is when I become exactly what he said I'd be in the beginning. Okay. Now I have it. So the priests are saying, okay, quit being so sorrowful. You've desired God's word. Just go out. <laughs> this has been a great day. Don't, don't get too, too sad because of what you're hearing. Okay, because they're saying this is a great time. You've wanted to know God's word. Now you know it. Now go forward and live it. And then verse 10, And they said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them, for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy unto the Lord. Neither be you sor sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So they're encouraging them. This has been a great day. Go out and celebrate. And this really is true. The joy of the Lord is our strength. When we are joyful in the Lord, when we are, are excited about him and, and, and working with him, we get that strength. When we're, when we're sorrowful and, and, in, and, and really in guilt, you know, we're, we're depressed, is not a good thing. It, if, as long as it leads us to repentance, but we should get through that into repentance quickly. When I've seen people who are, are in sorrow for, you know, sometimes years, you know, they never get to the joy of the Lord, the forgiveness of the Lord. And it, we do need that conviction of our sin and the, and the repentance and the, and the confession that it's sin, but we don't stay at that spot. We confess our sins to God, we, we're sorry, we repent for them, and then we move into the joy of the forgiveness. Because that's where our strength is, the fact that God forgives our sins. He forgives them because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he says that joy of the Lord is strength. And we get to that place where we praise God, we, we glorify God, we worship God because we're moving past the, the sorrow. And that is where victory comes in. God, you've paid for my sins. I've, I confess that I have committed this sin. God, forgive me. And I'm going to turn away from it. And then we live in the victory of that forgiveness. And otherwise, we sit there wallowing around in the, 
and the guilt and the despair and we don't do anything for God and there's no power, there's no joy. And God's saying, no, be joyful. <laughs> get, get beyond this. Get into the victory. Get into the victory. Now that doesn't mean we skip the step of confession and repentance. You know, we need that sorrow to know that we have hurt God, but it should be a very short period of time in it. God, I'm sorry I did this. I confess that I'm going to do it. I'm going to turn away from it. And I you know, claim, the, claim the, the blood of Jesus over this, and I'm going to go forward. You know, and we go forward through it because he is our victory. He is our joy. He has paid the debt that we, that we can't, can't pay because we can't pay the debt of sin. You know, the wages of sin is death, but the, but the gift of God is eternal life. Our sin brought death, but once we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have life. And our goal from that point is just to confess that we've done wrong and repent and go on in the strength. And this is to learn to forgive. Learn to forgive ourselves, number one. When we do wrong, we want to learn to be able to forgive ourselves because God has already forgiven us. And we don't want to wallow around in self-hatred or, or guilt because we did something wrong. God can forgive us and has forgiven us. We need to learn to forgive ourselves and live in victory. Then, by learning to forgive ourselves, we learn to be able to forgive others. And others need to be forgiven because if we bound our, bind ourselves up with the anger about them, we'll lose the joy of the Lord because every time we see that person, we'll just be angry because they've done wrong. And we need to be able to forgive them. Actually ask them forgiveness if we need to, but we're at the very minimum, forgive them for what they've done. Just as God has done for us, he forgives us. And this is why it's so important. Sin and, and bitterness of unforgiveness will tie us up and keep us from the victory of God. And this is why God says, if we don't forget in the Lord's Prayer, if we don't forgive those who have trespassed against us, he's not going to forgive us. And it's not that he's going to not forgive us for heaven's purposes because we have eternal life, but the victory on this earth will not be there because of our lack of forgiveness. We will bind ourselves up and keep ourselves from victory. And God's saying, I want to give you victory. Forgive this person. Don't let them have power over you. And that's the problem with this is when we don't forgive somebody, we're giving them power to bind us up and to take away our, our, the joy of our salvation and the, and the victory that in Christ. And if we just forgive them, you know, and then people go, well, that's giving them, you know, you know, that's just letting them off the hook. Well, you know what, I'm going to let God deal with them. You know, if, if I forgive them, I'm not letting them, off, I'm letting them off the hook as far as I'm concerned because I really don't care if they get, you know, where they're at. But God will step in. He's our defense. He's our, he's our shield. He's our protector. He is going to deal with them. And if, and if I take and say, God, I'm going to deal with them, he says, fine, you can deal with them, and he doesn't. I would rather let God deal with them than try to, try to have me deal with them. And God will get, get them usually much more than I would have ever wanted to anyway. So it's better just to release it, say, God, they're, they're in your hands. I don't need to, to deal with this. And I did this to my oldest son when he was young. I'd go, okay, you're not listening to me. I'm just going to put you into God's hands. <laughs> and he told me later after, after he came back to God that he still remembered that statement and it scared him. <laughs> you know, Dad's not going to worry about it, but God is. <laughs> you know, uh, but this is the way it is. If we just let go of our anger and our bitterness towards somebody, God will work. And when God works, things will happen. 
and basically, hopefully, they will come to come to God and, and get convicted and changed and and be brought into the family, and then they'll may seek forgiveness in the, in the process. Who knows? But God does the work. And here the people are being told, don't we go have a good day? And we love this. He says, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet. He's basically saying, he's telling them, you know, have some good parties, you know, eat the best. This is a celebration. Do the best you can. And by the way, if you don't, if somebody doesn't have anything, give, send it to them. You know, be generous. Be generous with your, with this, because this is a holy day to the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So he says, be generous to the people. If they don't have enough, they can't prepare their own, you give them stuff. You just make sure that they're taken care of because it's a special day. Everybody was to be joyful during this time. So verse 11, And so the Levites stilled the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be you grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great mirth. <laughs> great mirth. They were having a great celebration because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They were able to see that God still loved them, even though there were things they weren't doing, that God loved them. This was a great, their desire to seek after God was a great thing. And, we're, and we see that, and I love that great mirth. They, you know, they went in and they had big parties, had great parties that day and really enjoyed themselves. Verse 13, on the second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers and all of all the people, the priest and the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. So now the second day, Ezra's, Ezra's got to be pretty happy about this. People are coming to him. He's not even calling meetings. But the leaders all come to Ezra and they say, we want to understand the law even better. Okay, you read it to us, Ray. You made it clear, but I want we want to know it even clearer. And... I, I would love that to happen. They want, the leaders wanted to understand in depth. In verse 14, And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in the booths in the feast of the seventh month and that they should publish and proclaim and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities of Jerusalem saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches, myrtle branches and palm branches, and branches of thick trees to make booze as was written. So they were reading, and this was obvious that they were reading in Leviticus, what we would now say Leviticus 23:40, where it talks about the, the trees that they were to make the booze out of for this celebration. And they read that section and they realized that this is the seventh month, they're now in the, the second day of it, and that this celebration was to happen on the 15th through 22nd day, days of the seventh month. No, 20, Leviticus 2340? 2340 is where it talks about, specifically about the woods and everything, and which is what they're going to tell the people to do. But all of 23, most of 23, the, that, that section is all about the Feast of the Tabernacles. So, they know that they've got about 13 days to prepare, so they start telling, going into the back to their cities and their towns, and they proclaim to the children of Israel, get this stuff, get, get the wood you need. Here's the wood you need, go get it. We're going to give you instructions on how to put it together. And the celebration of tabernacles has two functions. It celebrates the wanderings in the wilderness and how the people lived in tents and tabernacles for 40 years. So that's a reminder of the past. 
But it is also a prophetic view of when the Messiah will reign on this earth, which we know will be the millennial kingdom, a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. And Tabernacles is a future look, a prophetic look at that time was, and looks back into the past for the, for the, the wandering in the wilderness. So this is a big event for the people. It, it, it signifies this idea of the wilderness time the, where God took care of his people and then where, where the Messiah will take and rule his people for a thousand years, which is the millennial kingdom which comes at the end of the seven years of tribulation when Jesus returns to the earth, which would be the... Which would be the uh, <coughs> excuse me, which will, will be when he rules at the end of the seven years and he comes back and he sets up his kingdom for a thousand year reign for all those who have not taken the mark of the beast and that are still alive at that point. We will come back with him as his bride. We will rule with him in, for the millennial kingdom. And this is what tabernacles represents. At the end of the thousand years, God destroys the world, creates the new heaven, well, lets Satan loose for one last time for people to be tested. Once he's had his little activity, God just puts, sends him to hell, sends all the people that, that have picked, chosen hell to hell, and destroys this earth and creates a new heaven and earth, and we will be with him forever at that point in the new heaven and earth. But this is what tabernacles are all about. Verse 16, so the people went forth and, and brought, brought them and made themselves booze, everyone upon the roof of his house and, and in their courts and in the courts of the houses of God and in the streets of, of the water gate and in the streets of the gate of Ephraim. The, the, and all the congregation of them that were come again out of, out of captivity made booze and sat under the booze. For since the days of Yoshua the son of Nun, until that day, had not the children of Israel done so, and there was a very great gladness. We look at this, the idea of the celebration of, of, of the tabernacles, still practiced by especially Orthodox Jews of this day, when it comes to the celebration of, of, of the tabernacles, they will build these booths outside their house and it has to have at least two walls with part of a third or all four walls, but they have to build, and they, they build a roof, a roof on it uh, with leaves and stuff that they can look up into the stars, and for a week, nowadays they say they just have to have their dinners there, but it used to be that they lived in these booths for eight days. And that was a celebration, a reminder of what they had gone through. And in here, they build these booths and it says that it hadn't been practiced since the days of Joshua. Approximately 950 years that the people had been disobedient in practicing this feast. And, years. and that's kind of amazing when you think about it. Over the years you had David, a great king who was very spiritual. You would have figured that he would have done it, but obviously he, he didn't do it. Solomon didn't practice it, even in his early years when he was following. Hezekiah, who, who found the law of the world, God and, and started practicing it, didn't, didn't do, do the, the festival of booze, the, the tabernacles or booze. Uh, he, did, he did Passover. They all seemed to do Passover, but this one kind of slid by the, you know, slid out of practice 
And here it says, and you know, we give 950 years, give or take, because nobody knows exactly where these dates are falling. Uh, I've seen some people very adamant saying it was 650, some say 640, some say uh, 940, 960, some say, you know, 900. I'm going to say the, with the timetable I found that looked pretty good was roughly around 950 years, give or take. Makes you understand what Peter was saying. You want me to make loose? You didn't know what to say? Well, that's exactly what it was. You know, hey, we, you know, we, we've, you know, uh, these booze are important, you know, that represents something. And Moses lived in booze, you know, we're, we, can, we can do these for you, God. And, uh, but 950 years, this festival of tabernacles had not been practiced. By Jesus' day, they're practicing it all the time. From this point on, it seems that they practice it a lot. Because even in Jesus' day, they were practicing the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And even until today, the Feast of Tabernacles is is still celebrated by Orthodox Jews. And if you live in a place where a lot of Orthodox Jews are, during that particular time, you'll see these little, you know, little building, you know, funny looking buildings built outside their backyards or in their front yards, or they live in an apartment, it might be on their terrace, you know, their balcony. Uh, but it's a celebration. And it's a celebration that talks about Messiah's reign, Messiah's reign. And then I love this, and, the, and, the, and there was very great gladness. The people were excited to obey God. I don't know if they were excited to live in booze or not, but they were excited to be in obedience to God. And I love that when I see people's lives get so changed that there's an excitement to change their life into obedience to God. And I love it when that happens. It's fun to see the lives that get changed and living for God and it just says this is this is right this is what you're supposed to have when you become a new creation that new spiritual creation should be desiring God and we and even in 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 Peter he says that you should desire the pure milk of the word and he uses that image of a baby wanting wanting to be fed and when a baby wants to be fed it lets you know that it wants to be fed and if we get older, sometimes we go, okay, I'm gonna, it's not time to eat. Well, I don't know how we ever came up with that. If, it, if you're hungry, it's time to eat, uh, and you should eat. But that's, we end up getting this, you've got to have your three meals, and now science is trying to tell us we need six to eight small meals a day rather than three bigger meals. Just, and they're basically saying when you're hungry, eat a little bit. Don't gorge during that, that period, but eat a little bit whenever you're hungry, and, then, and it's better for our bodies. And the same thing in the spirit the world. We should be desiring that word. We should be hungering for that word, and we should be feeding on that word. And we should be listening to as many messages as we can get, reading as much as we can. And as I keep saying, I listen to scripture teaching almost all the time. When I'm, if I'm near a radio, I'm going to listen to teaching. Because I need to be fed. Even though I'm the pastor, I need to be fed as well because... I can get out there and I study a lot and I draw a lot for myself, but it's nice every once in a while just to have somebody else come out with a different viewpoint, different, different things. Sometimes it challenged me to dig into something that they've said because I'm going to look and make sure that what they've taught is right. And always, always, always we want to be Bereans. When we're taught something, we want to get into the scriptures and make sure that what we're taught is correct. Because a good pastor is not going to teach you incorrectly on purpose, but they can still teach incorrectly. 
And it's our job, it's their job, they're going to be responsible for what they taught. I will be responsible for everything I've ever taught. But by the same token, it doesn't, because I'm responsible, does not free up the listeners and the, and the ones being taught from the responsibility of going and making sure that what they've been taught is correct. And it's very important that we all do that. When we hear something, we are good students. We go in and we go back out and we go and say, is this true? Does it match up with the rest of the scripture? I've been taught they clearly, they were trying to clarify it and help my understanding. Does it match up with the scriptures? Because anytime we're taught something that doesn't match up with the scriptures, it's wrong. Our feelings and emotions oftentimes will tell us to do things that are not scriptural. And the feeling itself is not wrong, but when we act upon those feelings, we're going against God and we're sinning. And this is very, very important that we understand. If the Bible says very clearly something is true, then you don't do it. And we see this a lot in our day with especially fornication, people living together without being married. They go, well, God told me it was okay. Where, did, you know, where in the Bible did he tell you it was okay to live in for, you know, so with fornication? Always, almost always. Our emotions are mostly lie to us. When I'm happy, and because they're emotions, they, they are responsive to whatever's going on around us. Okay, and somebody makes me mad. When I'm mad, I'm going to make some bad decisions because my emotions are not there, and I stop thinking about what God. And then if I get in the euphoric high of love or infatuation, I may make bad decisions there too because, you know, oh, I just love this person so much, I've got to do something about it. And God says, don't commit fornication, don't commit adultery, depending on where, you're, where you are in a relationship. And you go, well, I just love this person so much, it's got to be okay to, to have sex with this person because I just love them. Well, no, God says no. And, it, and, and we see it on, oftentimes, I've said this many times, when I've, especially younger people, when they go, well, I just am so much in love with this guy, and I, I feel God telling me to marry them. Are they saved? No, God's not telling you to marry them. End of story. He says, don't be unequally yoked. So end of story, God's not telling you to do it. And they'll argue with you because their emotions are saying it's okay. And they're, and they're absolutely sure God's telling them that it's okay because their emotions say that it's good. And then four years later when they're divorced, they're going to complain that nobody stopped me. Nobody told me I was wrong. Well, sorry, many of us told you it was wrong. But if we're going against God's clear word, we're sinning. And for some of us, God, you know, the more you study it, then he starts bringing in the principles, which aren't the, the, the exact clear word, but we say, okay, God has shown me that this is a sin. Okay, if I sin in the, against a principle he has taught me in, then I am sinning. If I go against a principle that God has taught me. And this is where he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because some of the sins are very obvious. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't, don't, uh, don't lust after, you know, your your neighbor's stuff, you know, there's some very clear things that are sin. Then we have all those areas that are gray out there uh, where people will say, can I gamble or can I not gamble? Well, there's no verse in the Bible that says you shall not gamble. There's lots of verses that talk about using your money wisely and, and protecting it. And that principle would tend to indicate that you probably shouldn't gamble. But there's no hard course. So if somebody can, has peace that God says you, that they can go and gamble or they don't have a problem with it, I'm not going to say 
you know, try to con convince them. But if you're absolutely convinced that because you have to be so watching your money that gambling is a sin, then, don't, then you better not go out and gamble just the way it is. And here we see that people being excited to obey God. And it's so much fun when you see people being excited to obey God. New Christians are like this all the time. You know, they're just so excited to do, you know, God said to do this, I'm going to just jump out and do it. And the sad thing is, you know, a lot of times as Christians get older and, and get to know him more, they start to drift away from that. They're not as quick to obey. They're not as, not as happy to obey. And a lot of times you see them grudgingly obey. Okay, God, you said i got to go evangelize. Let me go find somebody to talk to. You know, instead of, man, I just wait, who, who can I talk to? You know? And this is important for us, being out there. And then verse 18, And also day by day, from the first day to the last, he read the book, the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to, unto the manor. So each day of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles, they read the word out loud. And that is still part of, the status, the, of it today. They actually have a schedule of what they read on the Feast of Tabernacles. And they read these verses, these chapters, morning and night. And that's part of their celebration because it's been back here. Read God's word. For, you know, and this is important. They read from the Book of the Law, which is the first five books. The Book of the Law is the first five, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, and whichever name you want to use for it. And then on the eighth day, they had a solemn. Of, as, that is a day where the partying stopped, and you go and it says, now it's the time to come back and do your repentance and be sorrowful for God for all the things you haven't been doing. So this was a big event. And this is one of... Three, I think it's three places where they talk about the word of God being found and read to the people and the, and the people's response. Hezekiah, this one, and I think there was a third one, I can't remember, but at least two, maybe more, that where the word of God had been lost or not read. And we got to think, you know, it's hard for us in our day to think about that because, especially here in America, we, most of us have three or four Bibles at our house and, uh, you know, Bibles are easy to get hold of. In this day, there wasn't a lot of copies. You had the copy in the, in the temple. The kings were supposed to write out a copy of the, of the Pentateuch by hand when they took office, but it seemed to very rarely happen. And it was very expensive to write a book out. And you did not have, until the Gutenberg Press was invented, movable type, we never had a lot of books. Because books all had to be handwritten and it took more than you know, you, for any book of any size, it took years to years to copy it, and it you know that person wanted to be paid for all of their time that they copied it, and and they cost a lot of money. So only the very very rich had a library, and we've had that for many years. And, and even even with movable print, it was still expensive, but more people could afford afford them at that time, and it's only been in recent years that books have been really available to whoever wanted them. And we see this going on here. The, the scriptures were hard to get hold of. You did, the average person did not have a copy of the scriptures in their home uh, because that was just not the way it was done. So we're going to end here because I'm going to start chapter 9 because it's a very long prayer. 
and we're going to spend time looking at it. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to study. Lord, help us to get excited about your word. Help us to desire that word. Help us to ask those who are our teachers to help us learn more and more about the word and, and pull out the, the knowledge from them. And we just thank you in your son's name. Amen.